Warning, Crescent City Crime contains violent and explicit content that is not suitable for a younger audience. Some topics may be disturbing or triggering for sensitive listeners. Listen at your own risk. Thank you for listening to Crescent City Crime. If you wish to further support the show, please make sure to like, rate, and review this podcast on your preferred listening platform. We can also be found on YouTube at Crescent City Crime. You can discuss episodes with other listeners in our private Facebook group or follow us on Twitter. You can also visit our merch store. All of our social media links, show notes, sources, and more can be found in our blog, nolacrimepodcast.com. That's nola, N-O-L-A, crimepodcast.com. We are now on Patreon. On our Patreon, we feature discussions about movies that revolve around crime and offer exclusive merch. If you would like to hear that extra content from us twice a month and access exclusive merch, subscribe to us at patreon.com slash crime. We would appreciate it if you help spread the word about Crescent City Crime. Tell a friend or aggressively scream our podcast name at your enemies. The music used in this episode is The Black Fingerprint, and it was composed by Dylan Owen. Welcome to Crescent City Crime, dear listeners. I'm Tracy. And I'm Brian. And we want to thank everybody who has listened to our preview episodes last month. And we would also like to thank everyone who has joined us on social media. We will be putting out our first Patreon episode this week. Brian and I will be discussing the Nicolas Cage classic, Lord of War. And you can find that at patreon.com slash crescentcityprime. And thanks to everyone for your support. We, uh, uh. We, we value it highly, and it means a lot to us. Yes. And thank you for helping to spread the word as well. Uh, so, Brian, I have deep feelings on cold cases. What about you? Yes. Uh, one, of the, one of the causes of it is uh, a lack of proactive uh, policing in some, in some causes, slow, slow response times. Departments are underfunded too. Uh, we will touch on this a little bit in this episode, but evidence rooms are typically a mess as well. Oh, yes. yes. Oh, yeah. Today's episode is going to be about two cold cases that have happened in New Orleans, Louisiana. The first one is the story of Vanessa Bodden. Brian, have you ever heard the name Vanessa Bodden? Yes. Okay. What do you remember about it? Just the name. Okay. Well, on January 2nd, 1990, the mutilated body of 19-year-old Vanessa Bodden was found inside an abandoned New Orleans building. The last time she was seen by her family was in the early morning hours of December 15th, 1989. The young woman had been attending classes to become a medical assistant, and since she was the youngest of four children. At the time of this recording, it has been over 30 years since her death, and her family is still waiting for answers. Mm. Anything to say about the I, I wasn't in police work at the time. That's, uh, okay. that, that, that I knew. Okay. Vanessa's niece, Danielle, said that on December 14th, around 8 p.m., she witnessed her aunt talking with some neighborhood boys. 
a fight broke out amongst them. Another one of Vanessa's relatives, Tiffany, saw what happened. Tiffany said that one of the boys shoved Vanessa and another boy intervened and protected her. Vanessa's brother, Waldo, said that on that same night between 11.30 p.m. and 12.30 a.m., an unknown person called the house. Vanessa went to answer it, but Waldo told her to go to bed. And there is not any information on who was on the phone. At 5.30 a.m. the next morning, so the morning of December 15th, Waldo got up to uh, go to work, and Vanessa was also awake. She was watching television. And Vanessa's grandmother lived across the street from the house that Vanessa lived in with her mother and her brothers. Her grandmother saw Vanessa outside at 6 a.m., and she was probably the last family member to see Vanessa alive. At 6.30 a.m., Waldo went to work. He said that the door was wide open, but he did not see Vanessa. He assumed that Vanessa had gone to bed. Because of the sequence of events that morning, it was not known by her family that she was missing until much later. The family called Vanessa's friends and then the police. And remember, this is 1989. We did not have cell phones. We did not certainly did not have smartphones. So if your parents were looking for you and they had to call your friends, like they were calling the landlines. Yeah, that's true. Or they would have to call businesses that you frequented and ask for you, which these days, you know, sounds kind of weird. But that's like that's the way it was back then. Like in like in my case, there were times in which I would, if I was late coming home from school, they would call a Beat Alton bookseller. Uh, on Canal Street, and ask if the kid with the with the red uh, Colorado uh, backpack was in the store or was upstairs playing with the computers. Ah, it was a very different world back then. It really was. It's a, just you you have so many ways to get in touch with people now, and ways that you can keep track of your kids now too. Unfortunately, though, nobody could locate Vanessa. Christmas came and went, and there was no sign of her at all. And it would be three weeks after Vanessa's disappearance that her mutilated remains would be found. A property caretaker came across her body in an empty building just a block away from her Gentilly home. The post-mortem report said that Vanessa had been raped, her murderer killed her by cutting her throat, and after she died, her body had been burned. It is suspected that whoever killed Vanessa tormented the family with threatening phone calls for several weeks after the funeral. One of the reasons why police can be uh, slow to respond to situations like this is if it's a young person, uh, police usually assume that, it, that, the that the young person simply ran away. I also want to point out here that Vanessa Bowden was a black woman. And we all know how wonderfully the police treat people of color in our society. Yes, uh, although I, I have to add to that, when I was in police work, uh, I saw police officers of color uh, behave exactly the same way. You mean like as, as white cops would? Yes. Ah, uh, okay. Yes. Oh, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. 
and not, I don't want to get too far off topic, but that's a very good point that you brought up. Yeah, that's an example of a, you could say, you know, people of different ethnicities united to a common cause in a uh, kind of in a dark way. Oh, oh, right. I see what you mean. Yeah. Now, recently, New Orleans cold case detectives have been looking into Vanessa's death. Detective Winston Harbin has reopened the case and he sent away pieces of Vanessa's clothing for DNA analysis. Harbin also swabbed Vanessa's family members for DNA and logged it into CODIS. I'm not exactly sure why he did that, but apparently that was a thing he did. Now, Detective Harbin believes that Vanessa's body was moved from the site where the murder took place to the storage shed where she was found. And since people in the neighborhood would have heard the murder take place due to the shed's close proximity to homes, he also believes that multiple people were part of the murder. So he doesn't think it was just one guy. And when I say multiple, that suggests to me more than two people even. With young people in a situation like that, there's peer pressure involved. The... Mm -hmm. uh, as in the other, some of the other friends just simply go along with it. Right, right. And they, it's, it is, it is kind of a, it's part of like a clique or clan, or clan mentality. Uh, like a mob mentality. Group of, yeah, yeah, group of young people like that, yeah. Well, it's not just young people, it's a lot of people. Right. But, yes, that's true. Sadly, Vanessa's case could possibly have been solved sooner since there was a rape kit done on her remains. But the New Orleans police purged the department's evidence room between 1999 to 2002 and threw away her rape kit, along with evidence from over 55 other open investigations. Do you have any experience with the evidence room with the NOPD facility, Brian? I've experienced checking stuff into the evidence room. Uh, I mean, more of this on another podcast. There was an occasion I had to check a number three driver uh, you know, a golf plug, plug, club into property and evidence. I'll get into the reason why I remember that it was a number three driver another time. Uh, but m my <laughs> my memories of the the evidence room from the you know across the cage was that of a what appeared to be like a 1960s to 1970s time capsule. You know, looked like it, it had just it was like really old. And I remember one of the guys, his nickname was Stokey. Stokey. Yeah, his nickname was Stokey, where he worked property and evidence, and uh, he looked about as old as the property and evidence room. Oh. Um, but, you know, people who work, pro officers who work property and evidence, they, they're typically uh, older officers who who are very, very comfortable with the way things are, and, and they're not the kind of people to look for to change things or to organize organize the uh, evidence room. So, so yeah, it it always looked like a uh, in other a mess. words, it always looked old. It's another case of the police not doing their job. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, to them, they were doing their job because they would, you know, they would receive the evidence, uh, tag it, give 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 a give a receipt, retrieve it for for prosecutors for court. Mm. Uh, typically, but the the 
the disorganized state that it's historically been in, which which I first noticed during the nineties, late nineties, um, it, it, it's not exactly it doesn't exactly facilitate investigations. Mm. Yeah, well, even though we are talking in this instance about New Orleans, this problem with evidence kits being lost, tampered with, or damaged is not a new thing. Authorities across the country have lost, mishandled, or even outright destroyed tens of thousands of DNA samples since genetic fingerprinting revolutionized crime solving 20 years ago. Now, evidence is even sometimes dumped after a high-profile exoneration. So, of course, this means a victim can be unable to have biological proof that will positively identify their attackers. Now, now, I do have an example of, like, evidence being lost in the evidence room, you know, like a personal experience with it. It was a, it was a marijuana arrest that I had, which was the result of a traffic stop, uh, Whereas the vehicle just had everything, every just everything wrong with it. Uh, the the brake tag was expired. There was no license plate. The trunk lock had been punched. It was a early model Chevy that had the steering wheel column broken. So I thought I had a '67 A, a stolen vehicle, and then it turned out it was his father's car and had been previously stolen, broken into, all that stuff and. Uh, all I had on him was the marijuana, but, you know, I didn't know that, that it wasn't a stolen car until later after, you know, after I brought him in and, you know, booked the marijuana, the little, the little bag of weed and the property of evidence. Um, and, you know, he goes, so he goes to trial. It's, it's like a couple months later, uh, going to trial just for the marijuana and resisting arrest. And, uh, the district attorney very discreetly uh, told me that uh, they're having trouble finding the evidence. <laughs> so we're, we're going to, you know, he said, J just give your best poker face, look confident, and we're just going to wait them out and and uh, hope that, he, cha that uh, he changes his plea to guilty, uh, which he did because the, <laughs> the, the prosecutor did refuse didn't want to tell them that uh, that the evidence was lost, uh, so we waited him out, and he he pled he pled guilty, and you know li now later on I had learned that that there that stuff like drugs turns up missing for uh, sometimes for reasons other than disorganization and evidence, right? but that's another topic. And they get. <clears throat> And the person gets locked up for the drugs for years and years while the evidence is destroyed or used or stolen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, yeah possibly stolen by a police officer, <sighs> as I thought. Of course. More of than course. a couple of times, I've, I've met off-duty police officers at certain functions, like, like you know, painting a, a boat or crawfish boil and smoking weed. Another topic. Well, okay, well, Brian, what do you have to say about evidence just being purged all over the place and even the the profile 
sorry, the high-profile exonerations, the evidence being lost after that. It's um, it's, a, it's it's a it's a problem stemming from disorganization and uh, a failure to follow follow procedures. Well, I also feel like, do you ever feel like any of this could be malicious? Uh, indifference. Mm. Yeah. It, it, it's also possible that some of the officers responsible for handling this stuff have just fallen into such complacency and serving the public as nothing more than a means of collecting a check and benefits. Well, that's another that's a top, another topic. Yes, it is another topic. topic. I know we're we're gonna have many many top. We're gonna have many many topics on this podcast. Now back to the New Orleans evidence room again. A Denver Post article from 2016 highlights the problem with the evidence room for Orleans Parish specifically. Quote: Inside, there are, there are dozens of guns piled into a shopping cart. A bloody shirt and two rape kits lie under a bicycle wheel, and strewn everywhere are marijuana leaves gnawed by rodents whose carcasses workers remove twice weekly from sticky traps. The Orleans Parish Evidence Room is a dump and a case study in the chaos that often rules evidence storage across the United States. So this is a, a national problem. I'll admit the the like. You know the evidence room at the NOPD. It's uh, you know last I knew it, it needed a woman's touch and never never got it. They need somebody with organizational skills. They they should hire a professional organizer. There are people who make their careers out of organizing things, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, maybe the evidence room should have a bring your wife to work day. Well, men can be organizers too. <laughs> Well, not around here, not in our house, but men can be organizers too. Mm-hmm. If you listeners want an accurate portrayal of this issue, the law, I, I remember specifically, I had to look up what season and episode this was, but the Law and Order Special Victims Unit episode behaved that season 12, episode 3, highlights the backlog of evidence kits across the country. Mariska Hargitay of Law and Order fame founded the Joyful Heart Foundation in 2004. Part of the foundation's mission is to end the backlog. And if you want to support that foundation, I'm going to link the foundation's website on our blog, nolacrimepodcast.com. So in spite of Vanessa's rape kit being lost, New Orleans cold case detectives, detectives are still actively working the case. They say that they have found new evidence, but they haven't released information on what it is. And we can only hope that someday, somehow, some way, this case will be solved because this has been over 30 years of a family waiting for answers. Yeah, 30 years is, is a long time. A, a lot happens in that time. Um, the family of the Tip, typically, the family of a victim, you know, has moved on by that time. But they, the thoughts of, the thoughts of their loved one are there every every single day. Yeah. Uh, back, if you lose a friend or a family member prematurely, uh, or tr- tragic death, uh, chances are you're going to think about that person 
uh, at some point of the day, even if it's 30 years, even if it's 30 years later. Yeah. And I just want to say, if, if anybody by any chance is listening to this podcast, and if you know something, do the right thing. The second case I want to talk about on this episode is Thomas Rolfs. Do you remember Thomas Rolfs? Do you remember this one? No. Where? Okay. Well, you, you might remember it when I start talking about it. Thomas Rolfs was a Missouri native. He went to college at Tulane University. And while he was at school, he met his fiance, Liz Fry. On the weekend of May 16th, 2016, Thomas and Liz traveled from St. Louis to New Orleans. They wanted to get married in New Orleans, and they were going to tour wedding venues in the city. For whatever reason, Thomas and Liz arrived on separate flights. Thomas arrived in New Orleans first. He checked into the hotel, and then he left to go meet some friends of his at the Uptown Bar, Miss May's, a very popular drinking spot. Oh, yeah, that's that's at uh, Magazine Street and Napoleon Avenue. Right, so keep that location in your mind. Napoleon, I'm sorry, Magazine Street and Napoleon Avenue. Yeah, that yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's, a not, it's a nice part of town. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's a very nice part of town. It's very popular. It's a pretty well traveled, crowded night, especially on a weekend. When Liz got into New Orleans later that evening, she decided to stay at the hotel and expected that expecting that Thomas would meet her there soon. The couple spoke on the phone when she got to the hotel, and that was the last time Liz would hear from him. Thomas left the bar at 2.39 a.m. A surveillance camera captured video of him leaving Miss Mays by himself. And from the point where the surveillance footage ends, it's not known if he was on foot or had gotten into a car. Less than an hour later at 3.29 a.m., surveillance footage shows Thomas entering the Delta Fuel gas station at South Claiborne Avenue and Toldano Streets. The gas station is about two miles away from Miss May's bar. The gas station shows that he purchased two bottles of water, which his family thinks may be a red flag. According to his family, he did not believe in buying bottled water for environmental reasons. His father, Ron, said he would yell at me if I bought bottled water because it wasn't good for the earth. The next time he was seen alive was 21 minutes later and two blocks from the gas station. This was at the intersection of Amelia Street and South Claiborne Avenue where another camera at a nearby business captured his final moments alive. Detective Winston Harbin, same person who was working on Vanessa Bowden's case, is also working on this case. He, he describes the footage as from the time he comes into view of that camera, he's running and then he collapses. Running means the altercation occurred beyond the view of the camera and this is where he ends up. At 4.30 a.m., a driver saw the body of young Thomas lying on the ground and called 911. At the scene, Thomas's cell phone was found, but his wallet was not. There was never any trace of someone using his credit cards, and his loved ones say he very rarely, he very rarely carried cash. Police said that Thomas had injured his hands in a struggle and that Thomas was shot, ran a few blocks, collapsed, and then died. Investigators never found any gunshell casings, which means that he could have been shot from the inside of a car. 
Yeah, he obviously collapsed from the blood loss, and prior to collapsing, you feel very, very nauseous. Mm. It's, it's, you know, bleeding to death is a terrible way to die, and when you collapse, that means you don't have enough adenine triphosphate, you know, oxygen, water, and sugar going to the cells in your body, so you have no energy. Mm. And you feel, you know, very, very sick. And you, you just can't move anymore. And that particular part of town, uh, like if you want to pick a polar opposite for a, the polar opposite of where he was earlier, Magazine Street and Napoleon Avenue. Yeah, it's uh, South Claiborne. That's a rough area. Yeah, that South Claiborne area where, where you have the over, where you have the the, the interstate. Uh, it's a it's a rough part of uh, of, of historic Treme. Uh, that can be very dangerous. And I don't think he was at walking. At nighttime. Yeah, yeah. I, I would not advise anybody to walk that neighborhood. And I don't think he was going back to his hotel because I did read that they were staying downtown. So they were staying in, in a downtown hotel and then going uptown. <clears throat> that was And going towards South Claiborne Avenue, that is not, that is not the way back to, the, to downtown. Yeah, that's, that's the opposite direction. So, now, do you think, because it, it was about less than an hour from the time that he left the bar to the time that he was seen on the film at the gas station, do you think it's feasible he walked that far in less than an hour? Yes. Okay. Yeah. The average person should only take you about 15 minutes to walk a mile. Okay. And what I think happened... Uh, I think he did something very foolish. I think he wanted to get some marijuana, and he did the very the very worst thing you could possibly do if you're looking to purchase marijuana is do what's called fishing. Just you know, poke around the streets and start asking people. Uh, it's a really good way to get robbed and even murdered to yes. do something like that, and or at the very least get get ripped off. Yeah, and we want to make it clear, if he was trying to look for something that was off the books, we're not blaming him. It is always on the person who actually took his life. It, that, it is that person's fault. It's not Thomas's fault. Yeah, you know, just... Be careful. Walking, just, 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 just you know, fishing blind is, is, is just, it's inadvisable. In all seriousness, if you are in an unfamiliar city and you want to know where to score certain things, and I'm only going to say that I speak from experience on this, ask your hotel clerk. Yeah, or hotel concierge, or yeah, the desk clerk, yeah. They yeah. they they get those requests all the time. Uh, like I said, speaking from experience, that's all I'm saying about it. Yeah, yeah some... Some some hotel desk clerks actually have uh, a list of people who will who will come to the hotel within within minutes notice to facilitate the transaction. Yes, a, a professional. Yeah, some someone whom the, the the hotel desk clerk trusts. Yes. And usually it's a list of five to ten people, and they just go down the list until they get a hold of someone. Well, but of course, I mean, aside from that, we can only speculate on why and how he walked all that way. But what do you think about the bottle of water? Like, you know how a lot of people joke about, oh, if I order decaf coffee, it means I'm being kidnapped. 
do you really think that this is something like that? Do you think he was trying to signal something in the hopes that his family would look at that footage and notice that something was off? It is possible. It's also possible that uh, the that he was that he was foolish enough to get into a car with someone who promised to help him acquire uh, whatever the off the off what, the books whatever the illicit yeah, stuff he wanted was, and they probably asked they sent him in to get. Let's see. To uh, did he did he take money out of an ATM there too? They may have even told me to buy them some no, buy, buy them some water. I don't see no, I don't see anything in my notes about an ATM transaction, but they did say that his wallet did not have well, they didn't know if he had any cash. I mean he could have hit an ATM anywhere really. Mm-hmm. So they the water may not have been for him. No. It's very, very strange, and it's very, very sad, and it's been about five years, well, just over five years now, and his family is still looking for answers, and Detective Harbin has said that they have new DNA evidence in the case, but of course they're not going to release that information because they don't want to compromise their investigation. And I don't really have any more thoughts on Thomas Rolfs, but... Do you have anything else to say? Well, yeah. Once again, the, the that that air that part of Treme South Claiborne along the interstate. You know, not only is it dangerous to go looking to buy drugs there at nighttime, it's dangerous to even be there. Yeah, like at the, nighttime. I wouldn't even ride my bike through there at night. Um, you know, now not only is there the threat of being robbed and murdered on that street, but also people drive like maniacs at nighttime especially on, on on the weekend yeah and so you know i've i've witnessed numerous accidents over the years in that area in particular so it's dangerous in that way as well probably even more so than than you know criminal activity yeah so it's dangerous to be a pedestrian in that part of town it's dangerous to be a driver in that part of town Oh yeah, yeah. I one I, one night I I literally witnessed a it was this Honda that was dressed up like it was out of Fast and the Furious, <laughs> uh, Tokyo Drift, and uh, I had already seen him coming in the rearview mirror and I moved to get out of his way, like to give him like two full lanes, and he turns he's trying to turn onto Esplanade Avenue to go toward like he's going towards that part of the French Quarter the backside of the quarter and he turns too soon. He does, he doesn't turn on the Esplanade. He turns onto the sidewalk and collides with the traffic signal. And I saw, and I, I sped up to get out of the way because the traffic signal collapsed. It was a large one. Oh yeah. You told me about that. And the, the vehicle had spun around and there was black smoke and I also had to move to get out of the way of the, uh, the his 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 car battery flew out of the out of the engine block area, and I had to I had to move out of the way of the car battery. And when I drove past it again later that night, I saw there was battery acid in the street, and the battery was still in the street. Wow! And the the hood was off was off the car. We should have a whole episode devoted to your. Uh, your late night Uber stories. 
Because that's where mm-hmm. that one came from, right? You were driving yeah. Uber, yeah. And and I don't know if the guy was okay or not, but I also saw him get out and run away. Oh my! He was probably drunk, and he was afraid of getting arrested for DUI. Don't drink and drive. Get an Uber. It's just better that way. Well, yes. So, dear listeners, in our next episode, we are going to talk about the life, death, and legacy of the musical artist Magnolia Shorty. And goodbye, dear listeners. We will talk to you again soon. Good night. And remember, if it's if it's dark and it's dangerous at nighttime, don't even be there in the first place. Good advice. <laughs>